the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, welcome back. Everything old is new again. It is the third hour of Tuesday. We have Hugh and Lewis Holman. Hugh Holman was on the road doing some work uh, that kept him away from here. We welcome you back with open arms, Hugh. I hope you had a good trip. It was prosperous. You're healthy. You're safe. And we are delighted to have you back. We missed you. I am thrilled to be back. And is it a secret that I was in Kazakhstan, a country that is near and dear to my heart because these are people who long for what America has created they they see the virtues of our founders and still celebrate them. When I first arrived there uh, in 1993, there were a couple of things I would see in many of the homes, and one of them was a picture of Abraham Lincoln. What made you go there in 93? To, uh, I, I had to be good to my word. So I'd worked for President Reagan, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, I thought, okay, we cannot goof this up. Yeah. We've got to win on the end game. Right. And so I went there to negotiate exchange student contracts for – Universities from the United States with universities primarily in Russia and Ukraine only accidentally ended up in Kazakhstan, and that's where the uh, ground was the most fertile and gave root to the greatest result. A university that's now almost 30 years old uh, has typically had about 5,000 students a year, all learning finance and economics and ethics and law and other subjects. Uh, taught from a Western perspective so that they can have a better opportunity to enter the world. And most recently, working with one of the great universities in the state of Arizona to uh, create a joint development program to create uh, a, a take a state university in Kazakhstan and turn it into a model of excellence for university education so that they can improve their higher education system across the whole country. Fantastic. I'm glad you did that. You know, uh, I, I'll get to the... I'll, let me introduce your son, but let me come He's back to that. He's the more important one. Well, and the you're, more skilled you're, you're both and hugely important to me in the audience. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Inside Analytics LLC. He has been here for the last two weeks, dutifully. Three weeks, yeah. dutifully. Been I've been gone three weeks. Yeah, more than a fortnight, fortnight and a half. One of the interesting things about the fall of communism, Hugh, is, and I got this from one of your favorite authors, P.G. O'Rourke, right? Is when 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 the Berlin Wall came down eighty nine, he came back. He was there, and then he came back to America. And you know, in your doctor's offices, you read the Times, the Newsweeks, the U.S. Newses, and World Report. In those days, I don't know if any of those publications still exist in print, but in those days, you did. He was mentioning how he was reading article and article. Wither Europe? What now, Europe? What cost? The fall of communism. You know, all these very hand wringing, worrisome. Um, worrisome uh, Cassandra-like concerns from, from, from the victors. Now that we've won, what do we do? Whatever happened to D-Day? Whatever happened to uh, Victory in Japan Day? Whatever happened to we wiped your commie red butts and we kicked them really hard and freedom wins? Whatever happened to the celebration? We didn't have it. You may remember George H.W. Bush said he didn't want to do a jig on the Berlin Wall and rub it in the Soviets' faces or the Russians' faces. You went there. 
you went there and made things happen, and I'm glad you did because I think for too many people, they just assumed everything would be okay. Things won't just be okay unless you go and make them okay. Right. And so Ronald, thanks for doing it. Ronald Reagan made it very clear that if we are successful in defeating the Soviet Union and freeing the hundreds of millions of people uh, in that yoke, that we would then have an obligation to uh, assist them to find the right path to success and prosperity and freedom and liberty. And unfortunately, uh, we've not done a very good job in many of those. And then we see the uh, reset by dear Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2009, which caused the Kazakhstan regime, the Kazakhstani uh, leadership, to realize that they'd gotten in bed with a fairly uh, traitorous partner because this the uh, agreement that uh, the U.S. had with Kazakhstan was a protection agreement that uh, we would protect them from the Soviets or the Russians now coming in, that Crimea was not to be repeated in Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan is in a very rough neighborhood. It's got the bear to the north with Russia and the dragon to the east with China. To the south, they've got a bunch of crazy countries in the Middle East, uh, and it's a very tough neighborhood. And they are still looking at the U.S. as the shining city on the hill that they'd like to become. What's the religion? One second. What's the religious breakdown? Uh, well, it is historically in the last uh, 70 years, uh, it used to be NR, non-religious, but it is historically Muslim. So they became a Muslim society about 1100, uh, but it's a very uh, moderate uh, version. Uh, the particular concept is called Tengri, and so it's a kind of almost a Druid uh, mm-hmm. Welsh concept molded or folded into Islam so that it's an earth-based it's actually uh, significantly space. older than Islam. Tengri is a uh, nomadic religion um, that uh, emerges from the steppes of Central Asia. He's it's exactly a, right. a, a sky-worshipping people. Now and, and so th- th- that is what that Islam folded into. And so that Tengri version of Islam is a very mild uh, earth-based concept. Is it part of the Caucasus or not really? Uh, you'd, you'd have seen Tengri people, uh, worshipping peoples uh, in the Caucasus okay. previously. He, he, but he means Kazakhstan. Is oh, Kazakhstan is not, no. Oh, okay. But one of the things that, that was sort of interesting to me about this discussion, though, is that we had, as we went through the Cold War, so much time and effort on winning the war, as it was. But then we had very little discussion on how to win the peace. And, and Dad, your work, you know, was, was I, I think, kind of in a decentralized way, involved on that side of the equation in Kazakhstan of how do we then, having beaten the Soviets and liberated Eastern Europe and, and a third of the world from the specter of communism, how do we integrate them into the global commons and establish a world that is freer, better, and more prosperous? And one, one of the things that happened right after uh, um, was George H.W. Bush's Thousand Points of Life speech where he tr- point, where he tried to reorient uh, uh, the American sort of foreign policy apparatus to getting to a more uh, sort of a different compact. But we didn't really want to have that conversation. We voted him out of office and we've been on this sort of silent strategic drift ever since. What do what 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 is the covid uh mitigation strategy there, Hugh? What is it like there compared to here? Well, compared to uh, the U.S. and the West, most countries can't afford the kinds of crazy behaviors we engage in. So in Kazakhstan, which had quite a surge while I was there, um, 
they have to have a fairly practical approach. They try to avoid uh, spreading so that they don't overwhelm their systems. But people have to work. People have to go to work. People have to make enough money to to get along. There's uh, some decent government support uh, for the lower base, a a pretty decent um, safety net. But it is still a fairly rural society for much of the country. And so folks are pretty well out on their own in the in the rural areas, and they're farming and running their cattle and sheep, uh, and, and small villages exist. And so there is that protection because you don't have everybody on top of one another. But Kazakhstan had – it was the red zone uh, during the three – the two weeks I was there. Uh, and that said, uh, by the same token, it's a much younger population, and so given the – propensities. Uh, They are not having the same difficulty that older societies are, like uh, northern Italy or the U.S. in in some parts. parts. And uh, they just have to deal with it. They are getting the vaccine pretty pretty well now available, although nobody in the country, I mean nobody, trusts it because it's made by the Russians. It's Sputnik. And I had more than a few dozen people asking me, begging me, could I please bring a real vaccine from the United States uh, so that people could get vaccinated with something that they would trust. That's an interesting point, that people who have, have grown up in the Soviet system don't trust Russians, don't trust Russian pro- products, and look to the U.S. as the shining place where they can get the real thing. COVID has changed. It, it ought to make Americans feel really, really great that while we beat the hell out of ourselves and our press and the Western Europeans beat us up for being uh, arrogant and mean, um, we're not French and German, uh, other places on the planet look at us uh, still with, uh, with misty eyes. That's a fascinating point, though, because the Kazakhs are not wishing to the remarkably egalitarian English or French or other healthcare systems that always beat up the U.S. system for, for its... Uh, peculiarities. They're not turning to those places and saying, send us the vaccines. They're asking for American-made ones. Well, that's a, it's a pretty easy argument to, to win when you say that uh, if the Canadian health system is so great as one example, then why is it Canadians sneak south of the border to get health care here? But I don't know very many Americans sneaking north to get health care in Canada. It's that point. Uh, that, of course, that, of course, is an important one. But the Okay, I'll make my point when we come back. I'm still here. I may be still talking. Let's make When my producer shuts me up, I know it's time to shut up. But I could listen to you two all day. I do want to make a point about what you've missed since you've been gone when it comes to COVID here in America and see if um, – did you know that there, there were hundreds of thousands of people protesting in France over the COVID mitigation strategy? Yes, indeed. And maybe we can talk about where we are in COVID yeah. and, and what that means for policymaking. Yeah, because there's one big thing that changed here while you were gone. Blame game. We've now turned – the apparatus of the state is now turned the country against itself by picking and selecting – hand-picking and selecting governors and states that aren't doing what the federal government says and making them the aberrants and aberrations and pariahs. That's new. We'll be right back. Can you remember a president ever picking on states like this? I can't. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh and Lewis Hallman reunited, and it feels so good. Lewis, you were unusually quiet in the last segment. It makes me nervous because you're like a giant boiler, as Winston Churchill described America. <laughs> Once lit, it's hard to stop. Well, um, I have been 
contemplating quite a bit as to what's hitting Americans against each other, making states and governors pariahs. Right. So, so we we've had this recent change in how COVID has been uh, sort of explored and expressed by the media. So we're, we're increasingly now we're seeing the blame being shifted to the unvaccinated subpopulation and all of the rest of it. So, anytime we see we see you know, new spikes. It's why are these other people letting us down? Not why is the state not setting policy that people want to follow? Why is the state not giving us alternatives that are useful? You know, it's it's the blame game on, on individuals instead, which is, I think, radically unhelpful. Um, but one of the things that, that I was exploring over the week was the writings of a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a book. He's a, he's a Yale lecturer. He wrote a book called... Um, H-A-I-D-T. Yes, that's right. Uh, and it's um, – oh, dear. What's the book called? Uh, uh, I'll look it up. Go ahead. Uh, it, the work is called Moral Foundation Theory. And what he's trying to do is effectively figure out how people moralize and make decisions and, more importantly, why it is that liberals and conservatives can't agree on anything. Okay. Now, this is a topic that we've had on this show and we've talked about quite a bit. Okay. But – Height effectively uh, identifies what he calls five moral foundations. The book is called The Righteous Mind, by the way. I've just remembered. Um, And so there are uh, uh, five of these moral foundations that people basically will use to try and uh, uh, make sense of the world. So the first is uh, harm and uh, harm avoidance, right? The next one is um, uh, fairness, which has to do with sort of um, egalitarianism. egalitarianism, right? Then you've got uh, purity, which is not only things like religious impulse towards and uh, attitudes on the fundamentalist side, but also things like, is this empirically true? Truth has a very strong purity component because it either is or is not true. Then you've got uh, authority and um, uh, uh, tradition, effectively. And now what, what happens is that liberals effectively only use the first two moral foundations. So liberals Feelings, liberals effectively are, are only yeah. operating on arguments that rely on fairness and egalitarianism mm. and harm reduction, mm. whereas conservatives actually use all five moral foundations. Okay. So conservatives are receptive to arguments that are then based in things like uh, appeals to uh, authority or hierarchy or or loyalty, things like that, whereas liberals Truth. are not. Truth, The exactly. virtues, the classic cardinal virtues, basically. Right. Okay. So this actually then can explain quite a lot of things. The first corollary that you might get about this is that because conservatives are sensitive to the two foundations that liberals are, but liberals are not sensitive to the foundations that conservatives are, conservatives can empathize and understand liberals and their policy, mm-hmm. while liberals cannot. So one oh, consequence of this— understand conservatives. Exactly. Right. So one consequence of this is that because conservatives are able to empathize with the moral foundations of liberal talking points, they can be persuaded and moved, which is why if you towards liberalism, which is why if you look at the history of American politics over the past 40 years, it is that slow movement towards a more liberal idea generally. And so part of what, what this has led me to conclude is that we are not making our arguments correctly. We as, we as conservatives. And if we want to start winning political arguments, if we want to see the policies that we would like instantiated, 
then we need to completely overhaul the way that we present our ideas and the way that we reason through them because our audience is literally incapable of hearing us. Mm-hmm. So when the we're making audiences exactly so so when we are then making points about the state's overreach with regards to coronavirus it's small wonder that we can't win that point because most liberals fundamentally aren't interested in the axes that we care about so how then can we make our criticism based on those foundations that they do here how can conservatives construct their arguments and argumentation on those axes so harm avoidance in fairness, egalitarianism. If we can do that, I think we have a real chance of changing the nature of political discourse and the direction that things have been going in, not only with regards to coronavirus, but virtually every cultural war topic. So, for example, on the coronavirus, we've talked often about masks. And I think you make the point better than anybody and frequently, Seth, that telling kids to wear masks is unfair and it's dangerous. It's harmful to kids. Uh, Lewis, last week you made the point that having this group of people, these young people, lose out on a year, lose out on real social interactions, uh, can will have devastating impacts on them as human beings. And we'll see that for the rest of their history and that that issue will show up in lots of different ways. And failing to make that point more often and more clearly as opposed to it being about liberty and freedom uh, and truth-finding, is part of our problem in convincing liberals. On this entire topic, uh, Lewis and I have been talking about the fact that we— Even some conservatives, if I may add, sometimes conservatives are a little are a little uh, hard to convince on that Absolutely. Point. And, and I, I should also yes, say that fair. it's not that all liberals are incapable of perceiving the virtues of, of for instance— uh, loyalty or authority or purity. Sure, sure. It's just that as a political class, they tend to be mm-hmm. blind to them. Okay. So yeah. in the general topic, I do want to hit this real quick. Lewis and I have been looking at the data we don't have and the information we should have that might help us mm-hmm. make these kinds of arguments. So now I think you've hit again, Seth, very clearly. We've got mask mandates being issued by people, especially about uh, putting kids in schools in masks. Mm-hmm. And we don't really have very good data to support anything. No. So now we've got the follow the science, but the science, as you expressed in the last hour, is irredeemable. You can't, there's no logic to it. You've got people merely using scientific arguments as a liberal uh, or conservative uh, tool to beat one another instead of actually looking for and developing information that's scientifically based. So, for example, we have argued on this show since the beginning that we're missing one crucial, important piece of data. How many people have coronavirus that don't show symptoms, the asymptomatic cases? Because that would tell us a much better and more reliable way to determine how serious this virus is, that is, how lethal it is, how many people are dying from it. The mortality rate that we calculate today is absolutely flawed because the only cases we know of are people who have symptoms and have been tested because they had symptoms. We do not know very accurately, the proportion of the population that has been infected by this virus with asymptomatic cases, because if you don't have symptoms, you don't get tested. Further, vaccinated people are also now being asked to mask precisely because the state is concerned that they may have asymptomatic uh, uh, spreading potential. That's the insight. And that we're not 
actually then looking for that. So here we have the CDC now saying vaccinated people must wear masks because they may have asymptomatic cases. And can transmit it. And could, as a result, transmit to it. To the, the vaccinated right, and unvaccinated. Correct. Alike. And the right answer is it is highly likely that vaccinated people over time will be able to get coronavirus uh, that is be infected and have a disease because from the beginning we've argued and believe we're correct that CR, uh, SARS-CoV is not a kind of virus that you're going to develop permanent antibodies to. Let me pick up on this when we come back, because I think what the CDC is saying is the argument against vaccination. And I disagree, and we'll talk about it. Good. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, my guests. Hugh, the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney, an educator in town, community um, community activist as well. Uh, Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Community activist is stupid. I don't know why I said that. Community. Uh, you know, I, I was a community activist community before Community activist is cool. Barack Obama before right. he's a That's state senator. Before a community leader cool. is who you are. Okay. Uh, I'll take that. Will you run for president? Uh, I am not now, nor have I ever been a candidate Senate? for president. Something? Uh, you know what? Uh, Every Wednesday I am, morning, my email is inundated with when will Hugh Hallman announce his candidacy for X. Hugh Hallman is unelectable, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> because he refuses to be zero and one. And if you can't tell from this show, every time I appear, let's talk about vaccination. Right, Go ahead. So and give you, it, you may have an argument. Uh, with let's me. just. Give us give us the stuff from our uh, current yeah. director. Yeah. Okay. So Wolf Blitzer spoke with Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, this weekend, this Sunday. Here's two questions. Out there, do you think the CDC and others, for example, got the messaging wrong when it comes to breakthrough cases, people who are fully vaccinated but get COVID? Experts have repeatedly insisted that breakthrough cases are rare, almost dismissing fears. But would it have been better to give a more nuanced explanation about what to expect? I think we all have to recognize that um, with 164 million people who are vaccinated, um, we should expect tens of thousands, perhaps, of uh, breakthrough infections. But the most important thing is not the number of the breakthrough infections, but what happens here. Those breakthrough infections have mild illness. They are staying out of the hospital. They are not dying. And I think that that's the most important thing to understand. We have a massive number of people who are vaccinated, and and, um, those breakthrough infections tend to be mild and not severe. But what about uh, all the fully vaccinated people who get the breakthrough infection? Can they pass it on? Could they pass it on to their children? Could they pass the virus on to older people, especially more vulnerable people with the underlying health conditions? And that's exactly the point that we made in our guidance. So, yes, they can with the Delta variant. Okay, so, and that so was the, the two p- things we learned from Rochelle Walensky here, at least the two things I learned, is that the most important thing is no longer cases, but what happens to those cases, which totally befuddles me as to why we're obsessed with cases then. And the second thing is that the vaccinated can transmit the disease. My point is once you're willing to admit that the vaccinated can transmit the disease, the only difference between you who may be vaccinated and Steve, my friend who may not, walking into a 7-Eleven is zero. You both can transmit the disease if you don't know you have it. You have to decide what things you care about. And uh, there, this is a very subtle problem. From the beginning on this show, Lewis and I talked about the fact that SARS-CoV-2 is a virus 
that is similar to other viruses that cause respiratory illness. And as Lewis has said, is it a I, shock? I say a lot of things. It's, yes. it's, not, I'm, it's not surprising that a, a very contagious respiratory disease with global incidence would be very difficult to develop a permanent vaccine to. We permanent. have the flu already, and we have seen you need an annual flu shot. Right. So, so it is not a surprise. It was not a surprise to me that they're now recognizing that the vaccine is not an end-all and be-all. It's not a one-time deal. The Israelis figured that out a month ago and started providing booster shots. Why? Because they've determined that after six months from the vaccine date, from the second vaccine date, that the efficacy of the preventative, the preventative value of the vaccine falls to about 34%. Why is that a surprise? We get an annual flu shot, and the, the bigger surprise to me is why we continue behaving so crazily about the fact that we've got a respiratory illness that can cause real severe consequences, but once it passes through our society, that is, once it passes through the global population, we will have developed some herd immunity. We will have developed some antibodies to it, and you'll see increasingly uh, reduced caseloads, and you'll see increasingly lower impact. Fine, but so, if the vaccine's point is to now save you from worse conditions should you as a vaccinated person attain or obtain the coronavirus, we'll pick up on the other side of this break. If that's the only point of the vaccine right now... To they lied to you from the beginning. Right? Is that a shock? Then why do you need to have some kind of proof of vaccination to engage in an activity that may harm someone else? Bing, bing, bing. Let's that's talk about point. it when we get back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. They are Lewis and Hugh Hallman. Every Tuesday in our second hour, we talk about COVID and domestic and international policy. Lewis, you have been dying to say something. So uh, a lot of the, the issues that we've been dealing with as a result of the government focusing on, on, on one issue continually, right? In this case, it was... Um, uh, a few months ago, which, which you had the, the quote with Wolf Blitzers, have yeah. they have they erred in just focusing on vaccination rates and not talking about um, breakthrough cases? Right. And this is a sort of a perennial issue with the government's response. You'll notice that at really every stage they, they've kind of run into the same trip where it's gone all or nothing on one measure, one variable. And the smart and sophisticated one people, one facet of this, the smart and sophisticated people, the thinkers on, on this are running around talking about other things. But for some reason, we can't get the federal government to respond correctly or, or broadly. And the issue here is that these are really what I would describe as algebra thinkers in a calculus world. Okay. They can take one problem that has one variable and is a static problem whose structure does not change. And they can think about that. But they cannot think about a problem. Get vaccinated. Has, get vaccinated. Right, get we, vaccinated. We have we have a vaccine rate, and we need that rate to be as high as possible. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the, all of the thought that goes into it. There's no trade-offs. There's no alternatives. There's no what happens next. There's no, like I said earlier in the show, there's no winning the peace after you've won the war. And so what what we then have then are these constant deranged, you know, insistences on overly simple policy that causes 
you know, more sophisticated thinkers to think that the government is run by fools and that we're not taking this very seriously at all. And it causes the rest of the media, those that are sort of listening to what's coming out and not thinking critically about it, to just parrot the latest line and treat everyone else as if they're a heretic or somehow trying to uh, uh, bring about the end of society as we know it. So here we are, the heretics. Let's give examples of how you need to think in multiple uh, areas in this and different facets. So there are three bits of data we've discussed uh, on recent and frequent occasion that demonstrate how stupid our government is behaving. Everybody's got to get vaccinated. Well, let's talk about First, it's because the disease is so so severe that people are dying and it's five or six times the death rate of flu. Right. We know that to be false. Right. We know it to be false for a couple of reasons. Easy ones, for example. When you only test people who have symptoms, you're missing all the people who are asymptomatic. Now, surprise, surprise, the CDC's director is talking about asymptomatic cases in people who have been vaccinated. We've known that there are lots of asymptomatic cases and people that are unvaccinated. All you had to do to figure that out was to go out and test a random sample of people and see what proportion of the population has antibodies when they weren't otherwise tested. Then you'd be able to actually calculate a mortality rate, a death rate that was rational. But now we have people who've been vaccinated potentially getting the virus and carrying it and getting the disease. Well, the same proportion of those people likely would also be asymptomatic. So if 80% of the population of unvaccinated people are asymptomatic cases, then the mortality rate is only one-fifth of what's being reported. In the state of Arizona, it goes from 2 to 0.4. Mm-hmm. Then if you apply the U.S. protocol and change it to the, to the British protocol, it goes from 0.4 to 0.2. That's the flu. Now, we've made that case over and over again. All you'd have to do if you're the governor of the state of Arizona is free up $3 million of your COVID money and run a study through the University of Arizona's medical center to randomly test 3,000 people who uh, have not been vaccinated and find out what the asymptomatic case rate is. You'd also then want to test 3,000 people who've been vaccinated and find out how many of them are carrying active virus. Then you'd be able to tell what the asymptomatic case rate is in the vaccinated and the asymptomatic case case rate is in the unvaccinated, you'd have a mortality rate that makes sense, and we'd stop losing our minds for running after disease that may be as lethal as the flu. And if you wanted to be really sophisticated about it, you might then track that oh, group goes and the test time them. Series. Yeah. Mr. Time Series. Right, right. I know. So so you might track the group and then measure them once a month so that we could see among this vaccine, unvaccinated group, as they start to get vaccinated, we then construct a data set where we've got over time, a marker of when that's happening. And then after that, if because we keep tracking them through time, we can figure out how likely are these newly vaccinated people to get the disease? When does their immunity start to break down, given how often they get the disease post-vaccination? And most important, we could start answering a lot you of the real really questions. think that there is a vested interest in not knowing? Yes, precisely. That's exactly that's right. That's the problem, because I, I think Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins professor, you sometimes see him on, on, on the television, I think he's right. We're, we err by talking vaccinated and unvaccinated. We should talk about immune and, and non-immune. That's correct. Because if L.A. County is 45 percent COVID, has had COVID based on the kind of study you wish we would do here, they did. Yes. If that's true, then, of course, you, taking into account, of course, your time issue, 
you have an immune population that's a minimum of 45%. So let's go right to this. The Possibly British, more immune than ju- vaccinated. Just this weekend, our favorite pinata, Will Humble, is on the air talking about how dangerous the, the Delta variant is. Well, I'm sorry, Will. It does seem to spread a little more easily, but it's no more dangerous. More important, um, he's then pointing out, gee, we're going to have spikes, except it looks a lot like Great Britain. What happened in Great Britain? There was a spike. They're about 70% vaccinated. You've got a significant part of the population that has natural immunity, i.e. they got the disease, and they are closing on probably something like, and I think Lewis has done the r not math, uh, something on the order of 90% of the population with immunity. 80, which, 85, yeah, 85% probably. Which is absolutely herd immunity. And the liberals now want to deny that. And the right answer is, I'm sorry, look at why their spike is petering out. Their spike is petering out not because kids are on holiday. It's because the population has had this disease either run through it naturally or they've been vaccinated against it. And so now there is not. And what happened? The British opened. They've invited Americans who are vaccinated to Britain without having to quarantine. Their pubs are open. They're full bore Britain again. And. We're sitting here still doing crazy stuff because we don't want to get the data that would help us make rational policy decisions for the thing that we've spent more money on than all the money we spent on World War II. We won't spend a little bit of money so we can make rational policy decisions for the reason you said, Seth. There are too many vested interests in selling us on being crazy. If anyone can explain it to me tomorrow, I'll sign an autographed book for them. I'm not going to Sackowitz to buy a bar mitzvah suit. That's what I had to yell at Hugh Holman. If anyone can decipher what that means out of context, we'll give him a signed book. Lewis Holman, the floor is yours. So the the big thing I'd like to really conclude on is this notion I had uh, earlier about different foundations of morality and that liberals and conservatives fundamentally view the world and view political discourse differently Mm -hmm. and that as conservatives what we really need to think about is the fact that the other side of the aisle is deaf is completely deaf to our argumentation while we are at risk to theirs we agree on the foundations of uh, fairness and harm avoidance. We think that this is a good thing to balance on the scales of, of justice, but we cannot convince them of the value of authority or purity or loyalty. So where does this leave us? I think that if we're going to have success, we need to retool our arguments. We need to stop say, start saying, why we should end the pandemic, but couched in a language that liberals will understand and resonate with, and that our failure to do so up until now is one of the large reasons we have been stuck fighting this endless, uh, 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 overly expensive war of terrible policy. If we can make the case that these mask policies are damaging the psychology of children, are, you know, hurting our communities are are otherwise dissolving our social bonds, there may be room for for improvement. There's a lot of room for improvement. What's the Jack Nicholson line from The Shining? I'll work in this way. Things could be better, Lloyd. Things could be a whole lot better. But until tomorrow, God bless you all. Thank you for joining us. Class dismissed.